Hey, science nerds, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, a podcast where we talk about the coolest cutting edge basic science research papers in a way that just about anyone can understand. Welcome to episode seven of Beyond the Abstract. I'm super excited to have a guest here this time. Derek was able to make some new friends in the meantime. <laughs> He's a um, homeowner extraordinaire, bicyclist, drag fanatic. <laughs> and neighbor. We live about a block from each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yet he doesn't visit that often. <laughs> and the same can be said for you. <laughs> okay, touche. Okay, his name is Sam McCray. Sam, do you want to introduce yourself and I, talk a little bit about the science you do? Absolutely. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I've been uh, dreaming of this moment for at least six months. So, <laughs> uh, so I am an MD-PhD student in Ellen and Derek's year. Um, I am originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, Ellen lives uh, in my backyard. <laughs> I'm a Kentuckian, though, so Sam, like, never claims me, which is weird, but I still consider myself. <laughs> I understand myself. why he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I am in the immunology department. My main research interests are how the immune system acts in metabolic disease, so obesity, diabetes, insulin resistance generally. I'm most interested right now, or rather the project that I'm working on right now, is looking at how obesity affects respiratory diseases, allergic respiratory diseases, like asthma. Ellen, didn't you have asthma as a child? <laughs> I was a cool asthmatic. <laughs> <laughs> those inhalers, though. Like unicorns, those don't exist. <laughs> I think Derek has a pretty exciting life update to share. Oh, yeah. You're looking at, or you're listening to, I guess, the newest uncle on the block. My sister just had an adorable little girl. Her name's Cassie. I'm going to Dallas tomorrow to visit her. I'm very, very excited about it. <laughs> Apparently, my mom got her, like, an outfit, but it's, like, for a six-year-old. <laughs> and my like, sister is like, this this baby's six days old. Not Something six to years look forward old. to. Just planning for the future. Just planning for the future. <laughs> Maybe I'll get her, like, I don't know internship at the hospital or something <laughs> get her a pipette a set of pipettes <laughs> wait ellen where were you last week though oh i took a very undeserved vacation to hawaii with my family it was lovely i did a surfing lesson of which there is absolutely no video evidence it's been scrubbed from all cameras and internet websites but it was super lovely and I only felt slightly guilty about not doing lab work for an entire week. You can see in reenactment if you just like YouTube like cat in water. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like those cool bulldogs that like stand on the surfboard. That's how cool I look. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Just think like Moana, but but she's the <laughs> character voiced by the rock. Yeah. <laughs> essentially, essentially. <laughs> So I'm doubly excited because not only do we have Sam, but we're also presenting a microbiome paper this week. The title of the paper is Bacteriophage Targeting of Gut Bacterium Attenuates Alcoholic Liver Disease. It was published in November of 2019 in Nature, and it's published by the Schnabel Group at the University of California, San Diego. I bet they're better at surfing there than you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's really triggering, Derek. <laughs> 
so I want to get into a little bit of background before we talk about the research in the paper. So an important component of this paper is bacteriophages. They're often referred to as just phages. It's just um, a phage. <laughs> That's what my parents said to me. <laughs> Sorry. So it's pretty well known that humans can be infected by both bacteria and viruses, but one cool thing is that bacteria have to worry about viruses infecting them as well. So these viruses that infect bacteria are called bacteriophages. And when they infect the bacteria, they can often lead to death of the bacteria. So people for actually many years and decades have been interested in using these bacteriophages to target bacteria. And there's sort of been a renewed interest in bacteriophages now that we have bacteria that have multi-drug resistance, so that are resistant to the antibiotics we're typically using. These phages look really cool. Like if yeah. you look at the structure of them, they're kind of like little like UFOs with a needle and they inject whatever you know DNA, RNA they have into the bacteria. It's really, really cool. They look like little aliens. Mm -hmm. I feel like bacteriologists get really hype on bacteriophages because they have a super interesting like background history. So they were discovered in the early 20th century. And then shortly after they were discovered, there was this like Russian scientific operation that was trying to use it to cure the plague. And supposedly it was successful in like four patients. And then after that, it didn't work very well. But Pretty cool history. Lucky four people. Yeah. <laughs> Plague. That's not one of the good ones to have, by the way. <laughs> Fancy masks, though. <laughs> Anyone else have a phage fun fact? Uh, another early use for phage therapy was that in the, the 1920s to 1930s, uh, phages were also used as a treatment for cholera in India. One review that I was skimming over before I said that they actually decreased mortality in patients with cholera in northern India from 30% to 2% wow. over the years that phage therapy was used. So maybe That's something there. Crazy. Yeah. Another piece of background information I wanted to go over is alcoholic hepatitis. Now, this is a liver disease that is due to alcohol consumption, but it's actually a distinct syndrome from cirrhosis, the typical liver disease that's associated with alcohol use. Sam, I know you spent some time on the GI service um, when you were doing your medicine rotation. I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about what these patients deal with and sort of the burden that this disease has. So I feel like for a lot of people, when they think about liver disease caused by alcohol, they think of cirrhosis. So cirrhosis is a fibrotic injury of the liver. So essentially you get scar tissue building up in the liver and that causes liver failure. Alcoholic hepatitis, on the other hand, is considered to be an inflammatory disease, an inflammatory condition. So essentially, you have very increased activation of the immune system, and production of all of these immune mediators causes damage to the, the liver. These patients often come to clinic uh, because they become jaundiced, so their skin turns yellow. Um, they have often have a lack of appetite or they get a full early in a meal because they have large swollen livers, um, what we would call tender hepatomegaly. And the really big issue with alcoholic hepatitis is just how severe of a diagnosis it is. I think something upwards of like 75% of patients actually die within three months of receiving this diagnosis, which is actually a lot quicker if you think than a lot of cancer diagnoses. Exactly. Right? Like once you're diagnosed, you're just 
it's you're basically on a timer and there's very very little you can do in terms of treatment in terms of interventions to make this better and the thing is 75% die within 3 months but some people actually are able to survive a lot longer than that and it's really difficult for us to predict who's going to do well and who's not going to do well and then also there's just really limited things we can do to kind of improve that diagnosis and improve lifespan on that note so standard of care for patients with alcoholic hepatitis right now is nutritional support and steroids and in a lot of cases the steroids don't actually work all that well and they have pretty severe side effects. Mm -hmm. In terms of predicting who responds to treatment, the strategy is often to just trial treatment. If it works, keep it going. If it doesn't, then you can withdraw care because there's nothing else we can do. So we've been talking about how there's like two major gaps in knowledge with this clinical disease. Both we have terrible treatments. I mean, steroids is such a general treatment. It's not targeting the actual specific mechanism of the disease very Mm -hmm. well. And then also we're not very good at predicting who will be the sickest patients. So I think that's one of the reasons we all like this paper a lot is it kind of gets into both of those points, which we'll talk about once we get into the data of the paper. The final piece of background I wanted to get into is actually just about gut bacteria. And I'll refrain from popping off too much because Derek knows (laughs) how I feel. Um, but gut bacteria are shit. <laughs> Literally. Hey, that wasn't even an intentional setup. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant that. <laughs> so the gut bacteria is super important for our overall health. It's really important for the development of our immune system. They help with our digestion and making sure that we get proper vitamins. And they prevent harmful bacteria from living in our GI tract. So they kind of outcompete these bad bacteria. Most of us have a balanced gut microbiome. We think of healthy people having a balanced and happy gut microbiome. It's very diverse with different types of bacteria. But there are certain disease states where you can have an overgrowth of bad bacteria that are usually not very prevalent in the normal GI tract. And a classic example we think of this is after antibiotic treatment. So when you are treated with antibiotics, These antibiotics often kill the good bacteria that are living in your GI tract. And this gives the opportunity for bad bacteria to start growing and sort of overgrowing. So one example of a bad bacteria that can overgrow in disease and the bacteria that they actually focus on in this paper is called Enterococcus faecalis. But it's been shown in different types of disease states that this bacteria can outgrow and cause worse disease progression in humans. I think like all things, the microbiome best exemplifies balance. You just can't have too much of one thing. You have to have diversity. And once there's something that throws off this balance, then other things can kind of take over, take control. And that's when you get a lot of pathology like C. diff, like alcoholic hepatitis, as we'll discuss here. It was previously known that the gut microbiome was implicated in alcoholic liver disease. And this was established by a technique called fecal microbial transplant. Or FMT for short. And FMT is technically exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) It's the transfer of feces uh, from one individual to another. A sample from a donor 
uh, is taken, it's put into a blender, like the ones that you would use to make a smoothie. Yeah, Jamba Juice isn't serving these though. <laughs> so samples are blended, uh, then they're filtered to remove any remaining chunks. Oh my god. We haven't eaten dinner yet because we knew we were going to do the podcast. And one question that I had that I think a lot of people have is once you have this, how do you actually Uh administer an FMT? Uh So it's very simple. You can give it via a colonoscopy, Uh via an enema, Uh or it's also given through a nasogastric tube. So a tube passing through the nose down the uh, esophagus, into the stomach, and into the first part of the intestine. You don't smell it, hopefully. I hope you don't burp, but... Sam! um, So as we've kind of alluded to, FMTs are are most often used in the treatment of recurrent, drug-resistant C. diff colitis. Less commonly, they're used for the treatment of irritable bowel disease and Crohn's disease. There are very investigational um, studies going on trying to use FMTs to treat anything from obesity to multiple sclerosis to depression. So from these FMT experiments, they did show that certain microbial transplants can make people more susceptible to alcoholic liver disease. So the question this paper is asking is what type of bacteria are actually responsible for this increased susceptibility to alcoholic hepatitis? And are we able to target these bacteria for treatment? And the first question that the paper talks about is, how is the gut microbiome different in patients with alcoholic hepatitis compared to both healthy controls and patients with other types of alcoholic liver disease? So the starting point for this paper is similar to a lot of starting points for other gut microbiome research papers. So what they do is they collected stool samples from patients with hepatitis and then their control subjects. And then to study the types of bacteria that are present, they can actually sequence the DNA of the bacteria that are present in the poop. So bacteria have the same building blocks of their genetic code as humans do. So just like we can sequence human DNA and get an insight into differences between humans, we can sequence the DNA of bacteria to identify different species that are there. What they found with this experiment is that patients with alcoholic hepatitis have an outgrowth of the harmful gut bacterium, the Enterococcus faecalis that we were talking about. From here on out, I'll just refer to it as the harmful bacterium. So it's previously been shown that this harmful gut bacteria is actually able to produce a toxin. And this toxin is harmful to cells because it causes human cells to lice or burst open, leading to cell death. Interestingly, um, one of the theories about this toxin um, is that it also acts, or it was might have evolved uh, in this harmful bacterium to act as an, an antibiotic to help it outcompete other bacteria uh, in its environment, so in the gut in this case. Mm-hmm. So because it was previously known that the gut bacteria was able to produce this toxin, they looked for presence of this toxin in the stool of the hepatitis patients. So what they found was that the toxin was present in many of the samples from the hepatitis patients, but they hardly ever detected the toxin in the healthy controls. And what's even more interesting is that they were able to correlate the presence of the toxin with severity of the disease. So the patients that had the toxin present in their poop 
had more severe clinical disease and higher mortality rates. Yeah, to the point that when they tracked these patients over the course of about six months, uh, they found that in alcoholic hepatitis patients with the toxin, mortality was uh, over 90%, um, whereas in alcoholic hepatitis patients without this toxin, survival was about 90%. So it seems like the line of thought is that this toxin contributes to hepatitis in some way. But of course, these studies are really just correlative. Mm -hmm. And as every scientist learns, correlation is not causation. So you would have to somehow prove that this toxin from this bacteria actually contributes to hepatitis disease. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the next question that the paper was asking is, can this toxin-producing bacteria cause liver damage in a mouse model of alcohol use disorder? For this first set of experiments, they had mice that were either exposed to a high-alcohol diet or a diet that was alcohol-free, and I'll refrain from making a joke about Derek's mice infestation and his (laughs) wine fridge. (laughs) And then these mice were exposed to bacteria that either can or cannot produce the toxin. So it's the same harmful bacteria, but one can produce the toxin and one cannot produce this harmful toxin. The mice that they saw liver damage in were the mice that were both given the high alcohol diet as well as the toxin-producing bacteria. So this was the only set of mice that had the severe liver damage. Next, they wanted to go into a germ-free mouse model, and this is a common type of mouse model that is used in microbiome experiments. So I didn't know if Sam wanted to go through the germ-free mouse model that they used. Absolutely, I'd love to. So these are mice that have been bred in isolators. If anyone has seen the the movie Bubble Boy from the 90s, (laughs) it's basically exactly like that. And these mice have their cages inside of bubbles, and everything that goes into the bubble is sterilized. So these mice have never been exposed to bacteria, viruses. In this paper, what they did, there are mice that have had a fecal microbiome transplant with either feces from patients that have the bacteria which produces the toxin, or with the feces of patients that do not have the bacteria which produces the toxin. And what they were able to show is that mice that had received an FMT from patients with the toxin-producing bacteria developed much more severe hepatitis than mice that had received the FMT from the other patient group. So this germ-free model has a lot of strengths, I think, because microbiomes are kind of like personalities. They're really unique to each of us. And these differences can really cause a lot of variability. So using a germ-free model really ensures that whatever we're giving the mice, the effects that we see are because of whatever we gave them, because we gave them bacteria from a person that has this bad bacteria that produces this toxin, or from a person that doesn't have that. So these experiments are building towards their proposed mechanism of alcoholic hepatitis. And that is that you need both the alcohol and the toxin-producing bacteria to get this liver damage. So because they were able to detect the bacteria in liver cells of the mice that were exposed to alcohol, they think that 
alcohol damages the barrier that our gut usually forms and allows these bacteria to travel to the liver and infect liver cells. Also, one thing that people might be wondering is why the liver? Why don't we get toxicity to the stomach or some other organ? The reason for that is because the liver has something called a dual blood supply. So not only does the liver receive blood from the heart, like all of the rest of our organs, but it also receives blood that's returning to the heart from the intestines. So often the first tissue that sees things that are absorbed from the gut is the liver because of how our anatomy is, because of how the circulation goes. That's why we think that we get colonization of the liver from the intestine in this case, is because there's a relatively short path from the intestines to the liver in this case. We were talking earlier about bacteriophages and how bacteriophages historically have been used to treat different diseases of bacterial origin. So I'm guessing that's probably what they want to do next, right? Like, can we bring back this ancient Russian <laughs> antidote <laughs> and spread communism to the rest of the United States of America? Communism, here we come, thanks to nature. <laughs> can we bring back this kind of archaic treatment method and use it as a novel way to treat hepatitis, a disease that we currently just can't really treat. Yeah, exactly. This group was interested in using bacteriophages because they have this specific type of bacteria that produces this toxin. They know exactly what they're targeting. There's so many bacteriophages in the world, they were hopeful that they could isolate phages that are specific for this type of bacteria. And a good place to look for a high density of bacteriophages is sewage. So lots of poop stuff in this episode. <laughs> my favorite. Yeah, it's a pretty shitty episode if I do say so myself. <laughs> so from the sewage sample, they were very excited to see that they could isolate phages that were specific to the toxin forming bacteria. So to test this phage treatment, they used a similar mouse model as before, where they have overgrowth of the bacteria that are capable of forming the toxin, and then they also subjected the mice to the alcoholic diet. They then treated with these phage that target the bacteria, and they saw that the mice that were treated with the phage that was specific to the toxin-forming bacteria had reduced liver injury. And they also found that there was lower amounts of toxin in the liver and lower amounts of the toxin-forming bacteria in the poop. So overall, this paper really discovered a lot of things about alcoholic hepatitis, both in how these patient trajectories can be defined and novel treatments. So they found that patients with alcoholic hepatitis that tend to have worse outcomes are more likely to have this one bacteria, Enterococcus faecalis, that produce the specific toxin that's injuring the liver. And of course, to really demonstrate that this bacteria that produces this toxin is responsible for the damage we see in alcoholic hepatitis, they transplanted poop from human patients into mice and then fed them alcohol. And what they see there is that you really have to have this bacteria that's producing this toxin and alcohol to really damage the liver. If you don't have the bad bacteria and you have just the alcohol, you really don't get that severe liver damage. And in the end, they're able to treat this by actually giving the mice phages that target this bacteria. 
these phages will destroy the bacteria and really prevent a lot of the damage that comes even with infection of this bad bacteria. This paper is exciting, not only just scientifically, like it's cool that they did germ-free experiments, it's cool that they found these correlations with the patient data, and it's cool that they use phages, but it's also addressing a really important need, which is what we've talked about previously, that we just don't have good treatments currently for this disease. So as you mentioned, I had a clinical rotation on a liver service, pretty much exclusively patients with different types of liver disease. And patients with uh, end-stage liver disease and alcoholic hepatitis are very, very sick patients, um, and they really stick with you. And that's one of the reasons why this paper stuck out to me so much. Liver failure in general uh, can really rob patients of a lot of their agency and a lot of their dignity. Their skin is discolored because of the jaundice. They often retain fluid and have very large bellies, and so they can't walk and they can't get comfortable when they're laying down. They might have tremors. They might become confused. And so these patients really stay with you. And patients with alcoholic hepatitis additionally have to deal with a certain amount of stigma mm-hmm. um, from having a, a condition that's quote-unquote their fault. Mm-hmm. And because the treatment for this is so ineffective often, uh, anything that we can do to help move the care of these patients forward is, is worth it. Another thing worth mentioning is that liver transplant can be curative for these patients and is often curative for these patients. Currently, a lot of hospitals enforce a six-month period where patients have to be sober before they can even be listed for a liver transplant. If you remember, in the beginning we talked about how uh, mortality is as high as 75% in the first six months after diagnosis. So those numbers don't really work out for a lot of these patients. If we have a way of stratifying patients to say, okay, you need to be higher on the list, you are maybe able to wait a little bit longer, that that will definitely move the care of these patients forward. I think something else that's really cool about this paper is proof of concept that we can actually treat bacterial infections in a way other than antibiotics. I think all three of us, while working in the hospital, have seen just how big of a part choosing antibiotics to treat an infection is in the hospital. Every time a patient has an infection, you have to send cultures, like see which bacteria they have, what antibiotics they're resistant to, and more and more doctors are noticing that a lot of the antibiotics we used to use to treat specific infections are no longer working because these bacteria evolved to become resistant. So phage therapy emerging as a new way to treat these infections is really, really cool and really promising because it just gives us new tools to fight these bacteria. Yeah, and with any new emerging therapy, there's pros and cons to the treatment. Like the pros that we've talked about before is that we can get around this antibiotic resistance that's so widespread and also this specificity that we've talked about. So I was talking to someone who worked on the same floor as me a while ago who used to work in phage therapy. And one thing that he pointed out that I hadn't thought of was that the specificity allowed by phage therapy is kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it allows us to target specific bacteria very exquisitely. On the other hand, you don't necessarily know how that specificity is determined. 
And so if there is maybe a single gene or two genes that determine the phage's specificity, then we run into the same problem as we have with antibiotics, where the bacteria are able to simply mutate away from being susceptible to the treatment. Yeah. And I think some cool future directions that this group is likely taking on right now is doing clinical trials, both with phage therapy for this disease and also the fecal microbial transplant that we were talking about before. So essentially what I'm wondering now is whether there's actually precedent for using phage therapy in humans. Sam, do you know if this has already happened? It has. It actually has. There are some limited cases, but most recently, I think in early 2019, there was a case of a British woman who had a very severe multidrug-resistant skin infection. And they were able to treat that MDR skin infection with a cocktail of phages that had been tailored to the bug or specific bugs that were on her skin. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, the challenge now is to move from these single, very specific cases to a more generalizable or broadly applicable way of using phages. It's really cool, though, that it's already being used to treat human diseases, and it's been proven to be successful. Yeah, so there's some exciting things on the horizon, not only for this disease, but other types of infections as well. It's cool shit, guys. Yeah, ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. As is tradition, we'll ask you a few questions. The first one is, what is your favorite part about doing science? I love working with my hands, and I love the aspect of creating something and of designing an experiment and then doing it with your own hands. And I feel like I'm a curious person. Clinic kind of beat that out of me for Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I'm really loving about being back in grad school now is rediscovering how much I enjoyed asking questions uh, and then being able to answer them on my own. Believe it or not, you can actually be bad at taking small amounts of liquid and transferring between vials, which I am surprisingly bad at and (laughs) Sam is really, really good at. (laughs) I feel like the general rule is like, oh, if you're going to do science, like 90% of your experiments don't work. And that's not true for me because it's probably more like 99% for me. But for (laughs) Sam, it's like the opposite. Like 90% of his shit works. (laughs) You're too nice. I just lie about the failure. (laughs) Make it till you make it. <laughs> Our next question for you, Sam. Sam is a fellow drag race fanatic, as am I. Oh, my. So, Sam, what is your drag name? Oh. Whoa. <laughs> oh. I don't have one. I don't know. So, actually, I, I have a little story. I don't know if I've told you guys this, but um, <laughs> I actually did drag in high school for a high school talent show. He hasn't told us this. I'm gooped. (laughs) Gooped, scooped, jaw on the floor. Um, I think there's one picture in existence of me um, with a black bob cut wig. Good luck. um, (laughs) In a small black cocktail dress with kind of a misshapen chest. Um... (laughs) But my drag name was just Dawn. 
Incredible. I don't yeah. know why. So elegant. Classy. You know? Ellen, I can't think of a better way for us to spend our stipends than to obtain this photo. I will <laughs> use all means necessary. We have no choice. <laughs> so thank you, Don. I sorry, I mean Sam. <laughs> thank you for coming on a podcast. Yeah, anytime. Thank you guys. 